The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher. We are recording this show on Monday, May 15th. And things are a little quiet in my neck of the woods. What that usually means is that my students are very busy taking AP exams, studying for finals, and putting the finishing touches on the semester. That summer light at the end of the tunnel is growing larger by the day. And if you're feeling stuck, know that freedom is just around the corner. We'll spend some time today talking about what you can do with your summer, especially if you haven't yet made plans for the coming months. What do colleges want to see? How can you get involved? What even is available at this late date? Stick around for our office hours to find out. In the finance corner of today's show, we'll have a conversation about spending your college savings. What is the most prudent way to go about spending your funds? How do you allocate resources gifted to you by a family member? If you want to stretch every dollar, look no further than the last segment of today's show. But in our first segment today, we want to continue our peak behind the scenes at college admissions offices all around the country. We're looking out east this afternoon at a tiny little state with a long name, Massachusetts. Joining me Mm -hmm. to discuss her work in admission at the College of the Holy Cross and especially Babson College is my colleague, the always fashionable Kimberly Aselta. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you. (laughs) Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Um, So let's just start with your, your tenure. So you worked at the College of the Holy Cross many, many years ago, um, and then uh, a little bit longer at Babson. When when were you exactly at, at Holy Cross and at Babson? Oh, you're going to make me do the math. Um, so <laughs> I started, let's see, I, I ended my tenure at Holy Cross in 2004, and I was there for okay. five years. And okay. then I went straight from Holy Cross to Babson, so joined Babson probably August of 2004, and left in 2012, so was there for about seven years at Babson. Well, and so so these two schools, um, they're close to one another, but they're very different um, in terms of the kind of academic program that they offer. What would be sort of the, a little snippet that you would say about Holy Cross and Babson in terms of the the details of the academic program there? So they, they were really different, at least I thought so, when I was leaving Holy Cross, which is a small, strictly undergraduate, um, Jesuit liberal arts school. So we were very focused on strong academics with that Jesuit mission, so uh, understanding across disciplines, you know, thinking outside of the box. Um, the students there were certainly intellectually curious, really, really smart kids, but that sort of understood the connection between different departments, and then 
the, the core was really this idea of men and women for others, which came from the Jesuit motto, which really sort of underscored everything we did. And I cool. thought, gosh, how am I going to go from there to a school that is still small and still in Massachusetts, but focused on business, specifically entrepreneurship? What's actually pretty interesting is that the idea of entrepreneurship and the idea of Jesuit learning is kind of the same. So Babson certainly was a strong business school with that entrepreneurial focus, but this idea of you cannot be a good business leader unless you understand business at its core and all the different elements and how they intersect and affect each other, it actually was a pretty easy switch from nice. Holy Cross to Babson, which in nice. the, it doesn't, like, like I said, it doesn't look like that on paper, but they were actually at their core pretty similar. Yeah, they, I mean, they seem, from an outsider's perspective, like fairly different institutions. But Babson, I think, is a little unusual. When I have students that are looking at business, um, often the option is go to a really big university that has a business school. Um, Babson is one of those alternatives to that kind of program um, in that it's really focused on entrepreneurship. Um, right. Why were, why were students that you were admitting at Babson choosing that option as opposed to, say, a big university business program? I think they love the idea of being at a small school where the focus really was business and the fact that because it was small, they had a lot of individual attention and a lot of hands-on. So we were known for being a hands-on school that was really, in some ways, project-based, especially in the first year, because students, as part of their first-year curriculum, were required, and still are, to work in groups and start and run a business. So they were given funds by the school to start this business and really learn by doing from that first step. And I can't say that that's something you get at larger schools. So I think students were really drawn to the fact that they can start from day one learning by doing and having had, and they use that experience from first year all throughout. So that's kind of neat. That's great. I mean, I think that's, and you get that, that special small school vibe, which I think changes your day-to-day experience around the classroom as well. Right. Um, but it also, I think it changes sort of the expectations, at least in my experience, from the application itself. So um, Holy Cross, about 3,000 students uh, last year was their undergraduate enrollment. About how big was Babson? Babson was, when I left, just over 2,000. Might be okay. a little bit bigger now. Okay. And, and I worked at... I worked at Reed, as listeners will know, which has only about 1,400 students. And we were really interested in connection to the institution specifically because of the size. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what, from the application point of view, you were looking for um, to make clear that students were really interested in the specific kind of experience that was being offered at, at Babson or Holy Cross. Um, such that that student was really going to fit in that that atmosphere. Yeah. So with Babson, we did have a supplement to our application, which I think helps when schools are trying to find, you know, what right. is it about us, right, that these that this applicant has decided we're a great place for them. For at Babson, I don't want to say leadership because then I think it's just in, it, this is sort of assumed that you need to have started something or you need to have been 
you know, captain of a team. And that wasn't really, while that can be helpful, we were looking for more leadership potential because we felt like you, you needed to have something like a spark within you to get to Babson with your, you know, ground running, being able to be part of a business in that first year and be part of our small dynamic community. But the mm-hmm. idea of leadership came in lots of different ways. So some people thought, we're a school for entrepreneurship. Everyone should have started a, a small business, whether it was a landscaping business or something like that. We saw that. But it was definitely, is this someone who is a self-starter? Is this someone who sees mm. opportunity? Is this someone who thinks outside of the box? Did they realize there wasn't a club at their high school and they went ahead and figured out how to start it? Um, did they, were they a leader in the classroom, even though maybe they didn't have a leadership position? Um, mm. It was that type of thing that we were kind of holding on to and also an understanding of what we did, right? So hopefully in that supplement when we're asking about why Babson, you're, be, you're able to make that connection that we're more than just a small school with a beautiful campus located outside of Boston. So right. an idea of what we did, right? Yeah, and I think that's one thing that I really impress upon the students that I work with as they start working on these supplements And I think it's an important thing when students are even researching at this stage in the process. If you're a junior, you're starting to build your college list. There's real value to diving beyond the surface level as you look at schools because you need deeper content to reflect on why you want a particular institution and to endear yourselves to admission officers like Kimberly or me because we want to make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into to some degree. Um, at, at Holy Cross, was there um, a supplement when you were working there? There wasn't a supplement, no. I think Holy Cross was a little bit easier to, well, I guess easier and harder, too. Um, we were really looking for students that were strong academics, could handle the work mm. at our school, for sure. Um, you know, the idea of service was certainly something that was a foundation to the school. Were we looking at students did that? Yeah, yes and no. It wasn't really a decision maker for us. But really, I think strong students across the board, sort of, again, that understanding of students that have an interest in lots of different disciplines and not necessarily, and that's not to say that there weren't students that were interested in certain areas, but right. this understanding of, of I, I, you know, I said this before, but just learning for the sake of learning. You know, I really think I want to be a doctor, but I do love, American history, and, and I value that and want to take those courses, right? Or I really love music, but I'm probably going to be a chemistry major, but I might minor in music. And so the students there were just really interesting and able to intersect their interests. And yeah. again, not to say there weren't students that knew exactly what they wanted to do, but I think they valued that idea of, hey, I can be a liberal arts student and really still be a strong whatever it might be that I major in. It's a really interesting observation, I think, because a lot of families that I talk to, um, one of the things that students are really sort of in a hurry to figure out is what they want to study. And they think it's really important to be able to declare at the time that they apply, even at the time that they're looking at colleges, what it is that they want their eventual major to be. And, you know, I think at Holy Cross and and where I worked, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Um, We're looking for students that maybe don't know what they want to do, but there are other factors that are really relevant in the process. How do you get at what a student can bring to the classroom 
and what their sort of talents and abilities are if they're not really clear about what their major is going to be when they get to college. Right. Well, as you know, at Holy Cross, we were definitely looking at those other things. We were looking for students who were strong academically. And when I was there at Holy Cross, we were looking at testing, too. They are now a test-optional school. So Mm -hmm. we were certainly looking, can you get it done in the classroom, right? But those other things about fit for our campus came from things like how well you can communicate who you are in an essay. Very important were those teacher recommendations, right? What does this student add to the classroom? And I remember when I was at Holy Cross seeing a lot of great recommendations. You know, this class was different because this student was in it, right? The questions that this student asked maybe made the course of what I had planned as a teacher to talk about that day go a little bit off topic, but we ended up with a great discussion. Um, This class is, is what it is because of this student. Those types of things were things I was hearing about good applicants to Holy Cross. Um, activities, of course, um, but I think it was more about who that student is for the community and in the classroom that made an impact when I was at Holy Cross. Yeah, and it's it's hard as a student, I think, to think about how you're going to put those things together in the application because you don't, you don't have control over what your letters of recommendation right. are. You can kind of guess a little bit, but um, it sort of is, I think... Uh, good fuel for making sure that every day you show up at high school, that that you are committed to your classes, that you're engaging with your peers, that you're sort of showing what it is that you do really well um, in right. the classroom, because that teacher might eventually write that letter of recommendation that comes across the desk of a Holy Cross admission officer or wherever it is that you're applying. And letters of recommendation tend to be really, really important, especially at these smaller schools where we're looking at community fit um, in addition to academic ability. Sure. Um, Kimberly, on our team, you are one of uh, the experts that has experience working as an athletic liaison. Um, and you did athletics uh, both at Holy Cross and Babson, right? Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to talk just a little bit about how athletics fit into the process, especially, you know, uh, you got a D1 school and a D3 school, so it's a little bit different in terms of the programming. But how how does sort of the coach perspective and the the needs of the team fit into the admission process in your experience? So they are, they are really intertwined. And it is interesting that I was at a D1 school, so Holy Cross D1 Patriot League, so a little bit different. And then Babson is Division Three. But I can say the process was pretty much the same at both places where coaches really started working with me early so that they were forming a roster of people that they were interested in that had already been vetted by admission, right? So mm-hmm. I was reading, doing what we called pre-reads, where I would read a transcript and either PSAT scores or, or actual SAT and, uh, or ACT scores to give the coach an idea about if I thought this person was going to be a viable option for them at the end. So usually it was like a yes, a no, or a maybe. Um, so yes was, you know, all things staying the same. You want this person. If they are on your official list, you're going to get that. And that happened both at Holy Cross and Babson. No was no. <laughs> the conversation stopped. And maybe was, you know, maybe. Let's see. Let's see where this person might fall on your list, right? So coaches always cast sort of a wide net to kind of figuring out what their needs might be, what I'm going to say, and you can kind of come back to me later with that one if, if, you, if you need that student or if you know, something improves or something like that. So it is kind of funny that even though it's D1, D3, they still, I think that the best, pro, the best coaches with the strongest programs 
figured this out early, right? Like if I need to really work with my liaison, we need to be a team, we need to be united, um, I need to go out there and really find a lot of people that might fit, and then academically we want to make sure, because really the coaches want you to succeed in the classroom too, because if you're not succeeding in the classroom, you're not going to succeed on their, you know, on their team. So right. I, really those best relationships were those ones where we were working really closely together to make sure they had a great team of people that could bring us championships but that their students were able to make an impact on our community in the classroom, too. Right. So, so I actually I, loved working with coaches. What, what is the, from the perspective of a student or a parent who's maybe working through this process, how much do they need to know about the relationship between the athletic liaison and the admission office? What kind of questions do they need to ask? I mean, is that something that just sort of happens behind the scenes and then you hear back from a coach about what your status looks like? Or is there some way that you can engage a little bit to make sure that things are in the place they need to be for a successful admission decision? Yeah, I would definitely think transparency is the best thing. And the more that the families know, the better. So I would ask, you know, is would you like my transcripts? Would, would you like my testing? Is this something that, are you working with admission? I think coming in knowing as a parent or a possible recruit that in the end it's the admission office, and this is true everywhere, you know, it's, it's the admission office who is sending you that letter at the end of the day to say, welcome, we've admitted you. Um, the coach is, can, can end up being a little bit of a gatekeeper there, but you want to hear, yes, I've talked to, to someone in admissions. I've run by, you know, them. Uh, I've run your transcripts and your testing by them, and you know, they're excited about this, your application. And I've heard that, you know, if that you're going to be on my list, and if I put you on my list, you know, we're going to be a great team next year. So you want right. to be hearing that that they have had that conversation. And if you're not hearing that, I would ask, you know, are you going to run me by admission? Is this something that's part of your process? Because you do want to know because in the end it's coming from them, from the admission right. office. So lots of communication and openness. I think that, that that seems to be a theme with both of these small schools is making sure that you know what to expect about the experience, that you're communicating with coaches, uh, and that when you're making a case to them through your application that there's real detail in terms right. of how you present your interest. Um, right. Any other thoughts to add on on either school? And we have more stuff we could have talked about, but we're we're out of time, unfortunately. I know we could have talked forever about these two. Uh, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I think we covered a good amount, though. Awesome. That's great, Kimberly. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Do you have any uh, plans to play golf with the boys this weekend? Oh, uh, this the boys played golf yesterday. It was Mother's Day, so I spent the day in the golf court, golf cart. Um, but they did pretty well, so. Wonderful. That's great. Yeah. Lot to be proud of. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, no problem. We'll be right back to talk about the best way for you and your student to use their time this summer. So don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes, Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Listen, if you enjoyed that last segment with Kimberly Asalta, I would encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be looking behind the scenes at many more institutions in future episodes from USC up to Reed and from Georgetown down to Tufts. Uh, Well, I guess it goes up to Tufts, doesn't it? Coast to coast, we want to share our experience with you. So if you have a better sense of, you'll have a better sense of how this process works and what really matters in applying to college. So subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. Um, And with that little reminder, I'd like to open up our office hours. In office hours, we talk about parts of the high school experience or application process that are particularly relevant to families at any given moment in time. And seeing as we're here on the edge of summer, one of the things students and families have an opportunity to benefit from is a conversation about the summer months. So joining me for that conversation is my colleague and a jack of all trades, uh, Mary Sue Yoon, formerly of the Barnard College Admission Office. Welcome, Mary Sue. Hi, Ian. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, uh, welcome back. Um, So let's talk a little bit about summer. It's, It's right around the corner. Uh, where I grew up in Arizona, school is already out for the summer, but I know that out east uh, students still have some time into June. Um, and there's probably a little bit of anxiety or maybe even panic that's setting in if students haven't figured out what they're going to spend their, their summer doing. Um, before we get into some of the details, can you just share a little bit about why summer is important and um, what sort of college admission offices are looking from students, uh, broadly speaking, out of their summer? Yeah, I mean, I think summer is very important because it can be a time for a student to really go in the direction of things that interest them. Um, you can dive a little deeper into your interest in the summer. It's a dedicated space that, that has some freedom to it. So um, it, it does allow a student to, to go a little further. And I think that ultimately what you want to get out of a summer is something that you could talk about in your admissions essays or 
in your interviews for colleges that do do interviews beyond, yeah, I sat on the couch and, you know, played video games all summer and hung out at the beach with my friends. Um, you know, I did something that was meaningful. And it doesn't mean that uh, that thing has to take up the student's entire summer. I'm very much a proponent of, you know, teenagers still need to be teenagers. But I think something significant needs to be in that summer experience, too, um, that you could talk about later on about, you know, how you were able to go further or dive deeper or manage your time well. Right. And in many ways, these are things that you can't necessarily do during the school year because you're so busy with classes and other structured extracurricular activities. And so, you know, I hope where I'm where I'm sitting that students feel like this is an opportunity, you know, something that they didn't get a chance to explore during mm-hmm. the academic year because of all of the restrictions. Right. So there are lots of different ways you can spend your summer. I think one of the things that most people come back to is an idea of a structured summer program of some kind. Um and we get a lot of questions about this. Uh, is it is there still time to sign up for summer programs? Um, and and what are sort of the value of some of those structured programs that are available, maybe at a college campus uh, or a camp or something like that? Yes, there may be some summer programs that are still open. Um, I suggest that when I talk to students about this, you know, at this state, um, and I'm on the East Coast, and most of my students are going to, to high school through the end of June. So they're still, you know, they still have a month left of school, and they're kind of trying to figure it out. So, um, But if you're still looking for a summer program and you haven't found one yet, yes, many of the deadlines may have passed, but there's still some that may be open. And I would suggest the best way to find it is really to look locally and perhaps find some colleges in your local area that might have a summer session. Even if the deadline has passed for the summer session, um, sometimes if the deadline has just recently passed, like if it was, you know, today, May 15th, uh, or um, earlier May 1st, or, um, you know, whenever it was, there was, uh, they may still have some space available in that, in that summer program. Um, so it's never, it never hurts to give them a call and say, do you still have space available in your program? Are you still taking applications? Because occasionally you might find a place that would take uh, a late application. Um, it's probably easiest to find the day programs that are still accepting applications than residential yeah. because a lot of residential programs uh, have probably matched roommates and sort of figured out their housing plan for those summer programs. Um, uh, whereas a residential program, uh, I mean, a day program may not um, have that constraint on them. When we talk about sort of these these programs, is the goal to, to take more academic classes that are similar to what we're doing in high school? Um, is it to try something that maybe we didn't get a chance to do in high school? What, what do you advise as far mm-hmm. as the direction a student might go for a summer program? Right. So I would say that the goal is to pursue something that's in line with your interests. Uh, I give the advice to any of my students, for example, that are interested in engineering, to try out a summer engineering program. Um, not necessarily because it's giving you huge amounts of bonus points in the admissions op- office, but because I think it's better for a student to be informed about what engineering is and what engineering isn't before they apply to 10 different engineering schools. So, you know, engineering is an area where a student might have loved math and science in high school, um, yeah. but they may not have actually had any engineering classes in high school. So something like a one- or two-week summer program in engineering may give them a more informed place to go forward into their college search. 
So yeah, I think that that's a, a great example to, you know, kind of dive deeper into something that may be related to a potential um, major. And you might find opportunities to do that um, outside of a structured classroom environment. You know, say if you're interested mm-hmm. in being a, a vet down the road or, or being a doctor, you might get an opportunity to um, shadow a vet or a doctor or have mm-hmm. an informational interview with a family friend or just something where you can learn a little bit in a, a more structured context about a, a certain type of um, profession or major or discipline, I think is really, really useful. And, and you know, now we start to shift the conversation a little bit into things that are a little bit less established for us. I, I don't want to say they're unstructured, but um, outside of the realm of these programs, maybe there's nothing that's available for a student um, or the deadlines have passed. Um, what are some things that students can do that don't immediately come to mind? I think a lot of people are thinking about summer school and academic programs, but there are other things students can do, right? Absolutely, there are other things students can do. Um, I think, you know, when I sort of asked some of my colleagues on our fantastic college coach team about this, many of them immediately came back with, get a job. And I think that's great advice. Um, You know, my own uh, high school years were filled with working at our local pizza place um, every summer. And so it allows you to, and I think that that's something that's kind of gone away in favor, but it shouldn't because um, admissions officers still like a student who shows that responsibility and that uh, time management skill and the ability to interact with adults and hold to a, a work schedule and, you know, you got to show up in the polyester shirt and get your, get your work done. <laughs> and so I, I think that that, although students kind of think, oh, nobody cares about a job, we did actually care about a student who, were com- who was committed to something like that um, and could show their ability to kind of put the work in um, during their summer, year, summer you know, weeks. So I think that that should not be undervalued. It's certainly something that we valued on the admissions side. Yeah, it's it's hard to get a job. I mean, yeah. you've got to go out and pound the pavement and, you know, fill out applications and talk to managers. And it's difficult, I think, to not not just to have the job, but to actually lock one down to begin with. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that is common knowledge among admission offices. And it's something that you should feel really proud of if you can you can do it. I think it also comes with a great deal of freedom because you're getting spending money. And yep. a lot of these other summer programs that you're doing don't come with that added benefit of, you know, a little bit of money in your pocket, um, you know, to steal a line from Dazed and Confused. So, um, you know, you can you can use that going forward uh, as a real positive. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What about, so some parents and students, they believe rightly or wrongly that rather than getting a more traditional job, um, something like an internship in an area of interest is better. Um, Mm -hmm. What's your thought on internships versus um, job opportunities, maybe research internships or or also, you know, professional internships? Um, You know, I'm I'm sort of, uh, I think it depends on the internship, I guess is is how I would put it. There are lots of um, internships that I'm sort of putting in air quotes right now where basically the students, you know, getting coffee and, they're in a work environment, but they're not really doing anything substantive. So although it's called an internship, I wouldn't say it's actually all that different from having a job at a retail store in terms of their responsibilities. Um, so sometimes an internship, you know, it can be something that is directly related to an area of interest, and sometimes it's just sort of like, oh, well, we had a family friend who could 
maybe get you um, into their company for the summer, but you really have no interest in anything, uh, what they're doing. So I would say if it's related to your particular interests, it can be a great thing. But if it's not, and it's just sort of, well, I think, you know, someone said that I should be working in a professional office environment rather than doing something else, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the best trade-off. I think it's a better idea to sort of forge your own path to some extent and to find mm-hmm. your own place um, to be. Uh, and, and even if it's, you know, not finding a job uh, in a traditional manner, you know, make your own job. Find a, find a way to... Um, get out there and, and sort of uh, talk to people, as you said, do some informational interviews um, and find uh, a way to kind of get some exposure into that particular field. I love that. I want to come back to that a bit. I want to make a, a quick point around the um, the internship job sort of split. Mm-hmm. And I think whatever you're doing this summer, if, if an organization feels like they're really committing to you, that I think has more power in in an application. If it's just you know we're going to have this kid show up and you know Xerox documents and get the coffee, that that's not something that's going to be all that compelling an experience mm-hmm. because they're not really investing in you. Uh, but when you get a job, they're investing a paycheck in you. There's an expectation yep. that you're going to have a certain amount of responsibility um, with a research internship. That you know PI is investing their project in you and needing you to actually do things to advance that project. So very true that you have to think about what you're actually doing as opposed to just the title that's associated with whatever you're going to do over the summer. That, that extends to, I think, everything in admission. Um, but so drawing things up of your own design, this is kind of, this is an interesting thing. Um, what do you do if, you know, you can't find a job, you, you're not necessarily going to do a summer program, you still want to use your time productively. How do you make sure that you're organized and still doing something that's meaningful uh, over the course of the summer, what are some suggestions you might have? So I think that some of my most successful students have gone this route, and not saying that this is necessarily the thing that made them successful, but it's. Uh, I do think that there's definitely value, as you said, in, in sort of pounding the payment and going out and interviewing, but there's also value in finding um, your own work path. Um, so a lot of states will have a restriction of, you know, someone can't really work in, in a big store until they're 16 or 18, which can be hard, particularly for our younger students who have later birthdays uh, for finding those summer jobs. But I found some really successful students who have kind of created their own work by going out to neighbors, perhaps starting with that and, and doing lawn care or, you know, dog walking, dog sitting, um, babysitting, you know, things that are their own uh, business creation. Um, I had a student who um, basically decided to uh, put out her own line of goods on Etsy uh, and had taken some uh, some materials that she had made over the the year and um, started to put them out on Etsy and take orders and really made a business out of it. She wanted to go into business, so I actually thought it was a great example of her entrepreneurial spirit that she um, sort of put out a whole marketing plan and and figured out how to do it. So um, I think that shows a tremendous amount of self-motivation and a tremendous amount of uh, ability to go out and, you know, talk to people. Um, And that can be a really attractive quality for a lot of colleges. Um, But it is hard to do, and so it's probably a good idea to kind of map out a plan for the summer and sit down with a calendar and, you know, figure out, what your plan is going to be, and give yourself deadlines if you are doing sort of that self-created 
um, kind of uh, process um, because otherwise, before you know it, it'll be September and you'll be back in school. Um, so I do think you do have to kind of hold yourself accountable just as you would have been accountable to a boss in a summer job. Yeah, write down what you want to do, what you're hoping to get out of your experience, things that you care about. I mean, I think just as a a general brainstorming exercise, if you're looking how to fill those months, um, think about some things that maybe you'd like to read. Uh, Community service is something that I think um, you know, it, it, a lot of students think they need it in order to get into college. That's not necessarily the case, but it also is a great way to get involved over the summer. And mm-hmm. you might think about local organizations that you really care about, whether that's the Humane Society or, you know, uh, an organization that works with youth and just figure out how can I commit 10 hours a week to this particular organization? Um, you know, we're really looking, I think, in summer for depth, uh, rather than lots of little things that you're doing. So, so find something that you really want to spend your time doing and, and cultivate it. Uh, people are always looking for help, and it's good to be able to lend a helping hand. Um, Mary Sue, I want to ask you another question just about summer for kids of different ages. Um, mm-hmm. Would you say that for juniors right now, it's much more important that they figure out something in the summer versus freshmen, or is it always important to have something going on. Um, How does sort of the timeline change what students should be doing? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, the importance of summer ramps up as the student gets older, and probably the opportunities that are available to you are also going to uh, increase as the student gets older because there's more residential programs that are open, there's more job experiences that might be open to you if you're 16 or 17, as opposed to, you know, if you're, say, uh, 15. Um, I think each year is probably going to be in in the student's um, summer progression. Um, probably there would be a, an importance of having more responsibility kind of each summer or more um, depth in what they're doing. Um, so, you know, for those of you who are ninth graders who are listening right now, you know, maybe you have something that's uh, a slight bit of academic or a bit of a camp during the summer, but, you know, more of your summer could be kind of your free time. Um, but if you're an 11th grader, then I think it is more important to have something substantial that you could talk about because for colleges that do interviews, when I used to interview candidates, I would often say, what did you spend this last summer doing? And, you know, I'd Always. like there to be a good answer there. Um, yeah. A few colleges also ask that as part of their essay requirements. So, you know, I think that it's, it's good to have an answer, particularly uh, if you're uh, a rising senior going from 11th to 12th grade. Um, but it is, it's a good thing to have each year, but more, most important for that 11th to 12th grade year. Great. I think that's awesome. I, I will also put in a, a personal plug here to come up with a reading list of some kind, three books, mm-hmm. a book a month maybe, um, the kind of thing that you don't get a chance to read in school. It can be stuff that's fun. Maybe you want to get through all the Game of Thrones series before the summer is out. That would be no problem since they go so fast. Um, but but do something so that you are reading. Uh, because, you know, Mary Sue has referenced the interview a couple of times here and what you do over the summer. Uh, a very popular interview question for me uh, was, what have you been reading for pleasure? Um, and, you know, summer is a time when you can you can do a little bit of that. Um, Mary Sue, any other sort of personal uh, plugs that you want to give for how students spend their, their summertime before we go to break? Um, no, I was just going to say that the reading is a great tip and um, that you may even be able to kind of gamify it by checking in with your public library because oftentimes 
they run some sort of reading incentive program over the summer. It may not quite go till end of high school, but I know that in our public library they have pieces up until like 10th or 11th grade um, where students can get sort of points or some sort of free swag if they <laughs> do something over the awesome. summer. So even better. <laughs> That is great. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today, and I hope our listeners now have a little bit of a, a better idea of how they can use this summertime. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. And remember, folks, even if you've dialed up a really productive, structured summer, you should also take some time to relax. Uh, do uh, think about playing some video games. That's okay. Go to the beach, hang out with friends. Uh, all of that is totally acceptable as well. Uh, the Finance Corner is coming up next, so don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. In our final segment, as we always do, we're going to talk finance. And I'd like to welcome my friend and colleague from way out east, Mr. Alex Bickford. Alex Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ian. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. So we are talking today about savings and a little bit less about how you get the savings and more about how you use them when it's time to pay for for college. Um, Now, before we get into some of the questions about how we use different savings, can you talk about just in general different types of savings that people might have? once they start you know, paying for that first year of college tuition? 
Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, yeah, first, it should, it should be pretty simple to spend your savings, right? If you've accumulated right. money, if you've been lucky enough and, and been uh, diligent enough to do so, it should be pretty easy to spend it. Uh, but actually, uh, you know, there are some really strategic ways to spend your money to make sure you can qualify for tax credits you mm. might qualify for or maximize financial aid. Uh, and so the main types of savings that we'll kind of talk through today will be your what are called qualified tuition plans. That might be your 529 plan or your prepaid tuition plan or maybe even a Coverdell account. Uh, some folks might have uh, stocks or, uh, or stock options that they're using. Uh, and they, there might be grandparents' assets out there or, or somebody else outside of the custodial household who might be looking to make payments towards college as well. Okay, so we got to think a little bit about how we draw from these different pools and, you know, how we're going to allocate those resources, keeping in mind, you know, different aspects of what it might get us. So let's start with the 529. I think that you mentioned that first. That tends to be something a lot of people are talking about when it comes to college savings. Do we do we draw down from that 529 right away in the first year uh, or is there a smarter way to think about it? Yeah, and that's a question that I get a lot. And, you know, if you have the money in your 529 plan uh, to pay for only part of the education, uh, you might think in the very beginning that, hey, I, I want to get rid of that 529 plan as soon as possible, um, because some folks think that they might help out financial aid in future years. So the first thing that I'll tell you is that for the most part, um, as long as the 529 plan is owned by the parent and the student is listed as the beneficiary, 529 plans are considered to be parentally owned assets. So whether it's a five, money in a 529 plan or money in mom and dad's checking or savings account, the impact on financial aid is exactly the same and actually is very, very low. So having money in assets, in parentally owned assets, has very little impact on financial aid. So using the 529 plan doesn't necessarily um, mean you're going to get more aid, certainly not significantly more aid. So if you're thinking that that would be the reason to spend the money down, uh, that wouldn't actually be a reason. Uh, so what we have to do instead of, uh, of thinking about spending it all right away is thinking about, okay, uh, when I spend money, what happens to my eligibility for tax credits? Uh, what happens to my financial aid eligibility? So the first thing I'd say is that depending on where your adjusted gross income is, if it's below $180,000 if you're married finally and jointly, and ninety if you're filing singly, you may have some eligibility for what's called the American Opportunity Tax Credit. Uh, and if you do have eligibility for that tax credit, you want to make sure that you preserve that eligibility. And how that tax credit works is uh, the first $2,000 that you spend on tuition, uh, fees, or required uh, books and supplies actually can come back to you in a true credit back to you next year on your taxes. So you're, you're actually paying $2,000 less uh, in federal taxes. Um, the key thing here is, is that money has to be spent out of your pocket or from a student loan, meaning from a non-tax-benefited educational account. So you can't spend your 529 plan money, your prepaid tuition plan money, uh, or your Coverdell savings uh, on this expense and get the tax credit. So it's important to have at least $4,000 to fully qualify for the credit, at least $4,000 in eligible expenses that you've spent either from borrowing a student loan or out of your own savings and not from the 529 plan. Got so even if I've got a 529 that would cover all of my tuition for four years for my kid, it might be a good idea for me to spend this first $4,000 just to get 2000 back 
essentially free money. Yes. Um, from, exactly, from the federal exactly. government. You can get up, that's exactly it, Ian. You can get up to $2,500 back totally if you spend the $4,000. Uh, wow. And so even in, a, in an unlikely scenario where you had enough saved for all four years, um, the, the taxes or penalties you might have left over on that 529 plan money that you have to pay would be less than the tax credit that you'd get. So it almost always makes sense to spend the money for the tax credit first. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, you mentioned uh, in your response there that you're thinking a little bit, you might think a little bit about how you can change what you qualify for in subsequent years. So you didn't get much your first year in terms of qualification, but you want your eligibility for financial aid to increase. So can you do things about how you spend your savings to affect that eligibility? Yeah, so there, I mean, there are a couple of things that you can do, and there are a couple of things that you can think of. Uh, the first thing that we need to really understand is the, the main driver uh, and, uh, in the financial aid formula is really, uh, parent income. If you're not going to qualify for financial aid or if you didn't qualify for as much financial aid, uh, as you might think, it's almost always because of parent income and not because of other things. But there are a couple of things out there that you can do to qualify for a few dollars more each year. Um, and the things that have uh, the next biggest impact after parent income would be assets that the student owns uh, or income that the student has. So if we start on assets that the student owns, so unlike the 529 plan, there are student-owned assets out there. They're commonly referred to as custodial accounts or UTMAs or UGMAs. And actually, these assets, unlike parentally-owned assets, have a much larger impact on financial aid. So spending down assets that your student owns uh, early on in the education can help maximize financial aid uh, eligibility uh, in future years. Great. That's great. What about, um, what about earnings? Uh, like say in the stock market, um, interest that I might be yeah. getting, are there things that I need to be cautious exactly. of as I'm making investments? That, that, that's a, a great point is that, so when you're thinking about parent income, when we're applying for financial aid, we really want our income, if at all possible, to be as close to normal as, as it can be, as close to what your kind of base level, if you just worked and that was it, um, as it can be. And that means avoiding things like capital gains. Uh, if you have capital gains come in, it might artificially inflate your income. And when you artificially inflate your income, you're going to lose out on financial aid eligibility. Uh, now, so there are two ways to approach that. The, the most ideal way would be to try to avoid capital gains altogether during kind of the years that matter. And so just to kind of have in, in the back of your brain, the years that matter are going to be two years before your child is in college. And for every subsequent year after that, uh, that your child is going to be in college two years later. So it's always two years back. So, for example, for folks who are going to school this fall in, uh, in 2017, the tw 2015 year is actually what matters, uh, and then so on and so forth. So it'll be 2016 and 2017 and, and, and so on. And so if you can avoid capital gains uh, during those what are called base years, uh, that's the ideal way to kind of minimize your income. Uh, if there's no way to avoid it and you're going to have those capital gains hits, um, whether it's because you need to pay for college or college-related expenses uh, or um, because you, you're, you're being forced to kind of cash in on a stock option or something like that, 
Um, my suggestion then would be to go back to the college where your child is attending or considering attending uh, and let them know, hey, this is not part of my normal income. This was a one-time occurrence. Uh, here's what my okay. normal income looks like. Good. That sounds good. Um, we have uh, just a couple of more minutes, but I wanted to touch on one other kind of investment in a student's education, which would be uh, grandparents or non-custodial uh, family members who want to contribute, which is a great benefit. Um, but I think we also want to figure out a way to maximize that benefit. So any suggestions you would make around uh, yeah. contributions from non-custodial family members? It, 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 and I think this is one of the more... I think it's one of more, the more troubling spots for families in some ways because they don't want to let a gift horse in the mouse, right? They want to take the money from, from whoever it is that's offering money and just use it uh, and say thank you. Uh, they don't want to kind of say, well, uh, we want to use it in this way instead of this way. Uh, but, you know, oftentimes, especially with grandparents and, and even non-custodial parents, they want what is best for the child as well. And what's best for the child is to maximize the financial aid eligibility that the entire that the child can qualify for uh, to, to make sure that their dollars are going as far as they can. So there's a couple of things here. So whether it's a payment from somebody who is uh, a, a relative or non-relative that is a non-parent, or even if it's a payment from a parent who may not be the custodial parent and may not have had to take part in the financial aid process, those payments can all impact financial aid, whereas payments from parents, because they're part of the financial aid process, doesn't impact financial aid. Uh, so when there's a payment that may impact financial aid, like a payment from a grandparent or maybe a non-custodial parent, uh, the timing is extremely important. Uh, and the timing is important because those payments are actually considered to be student income. And students, after the first $6,000 or so in income, uh, every dollar that they make or that is paid on their behalf and is considered student income, 50 cents on every dollar is an amount that they could lose in financial aid in future years. So you can imagine a scenario where maybe a student had a part-time job and made six grand or so, then grandma paid $10,000 for the first year of college. That means that two years later, in their junior year, that this student could lose up to $5,000 in financial aid. Wow. So when we, when we go back and think about the timing here, uh, that's what yeah. the key piece is, is that uh, grandparents could pay all of senior year, uh, all of junior year, and actually even the second, second half of sophomore year, assuming that, that the student is on a typical four-year plan and is not planning on attending undergraduate school for more than four years. Uh, so those folks could pay those final five semesters of college without any impact on financial aid. The payments of those first three semesters are what could really hurt. Perfect. So be strategic even about receiving those gifts and uh, think about how it's going to impact your aid eligibility. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on to talk about spending savings wisely. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, another thanks to all my guests for their expertise today. College Coach uh, is one of those places where we're able to be routinely astounded by the expertise of our colleagues, and today was a great example of that. On next week's show, we continue to bring you excellent college admissions and finance content. We'll be looking behind the scenes at the USC admission office, discussing life on campus for first-generation students, 
and we'll talk a little bit about how to begin saving for college, which we'll sort of trace back from our, our session today. Uh, I'll be back in three weeks to host the show and answer your listener questions, and I'm hoping you've got a lot on your mind. Send those questions to gettinginvoiceamerica at gmail.com. Until next week, when Beth Heaton returns to hosting duties, enjoy the final days of the academic year. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.